You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, episode 167, The Invasion of Norway, part 5, Denmark, Christiansund, Sola, and Trondheim. This week, a big thank you goes out to Steve and Philip for the donations, and to Michael, Henrik, Eric, Ryan, Lee, and Stephen for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. German troops would begin their invasion of Denmark and Norway early in the morning of April 9, 1940. Across both nations, defending forces would be woken up and forced to answer the German aggression in generally quite desperate circumstances. In Norway in particular, the geography of the nation became very important. Wars at times turn on the decisions made by individuals very close to the fighting. And during a surprise invasion, the relatively junior officers near the front had a major impact on the course of the campaigns. This was then exacerbated for Norway by the nature of the fighting, with multiple small and disconnected German landings that put a tremendous pressure on the local commanders to make the right choices, or to at least make the only choices available to them to meet the German attacks. They were not always successful, and in fact the Norwegian efforts would mostly end in failure, but the resistance encountered came as a shock to the German invaders, and in some areas, the attacks would be far more costly than planned. This episode will give an overview of the Norwegian defensive forces, and then dive into four specific areas that would be under attack on April 9th, Denmark, Christiansund, Sola, and Trondheim. Over the next several episodes, the podcast will cover the other areas of the invasion, all of which have to be covered separately due to the isolated nature of each action. But first we need to talk about the forces that Norway had to defend itself with. Smaller nations were always at a huge disadvantage when it came to their armed forces, particularly when they were confronted by an aggressive neighbor, a larger aggressive neighbor. And as is so often the case in modern warfare, the problem was really one of money. Throughout the interwar years, the Norwegian military had declined in strength due to a lack of funds. Overall defense spending would fall to just 9 million in 1935, While it would increase in the years that followed, the Norwegians would run into the same problems of other nations that were trying to rearm at this same time, a lack of things to buy. The vast majority of the military hardware used by Norwegian forces were imported from abroad, particularly Britain and France, but these purchases became far more difficult as they struggled to meet their own rearmament goals. 
This resulted in a situation where the Norwegians found it difficult to even spend the money that they had, which meant that when the war started, they had millions in funds on hand with little to spend it on. When it came to organization, the army was split into six zones, with each zone being designated for a division of troops. In theory, if the army was fully mobilized, there would be around 120,000 soldiers, but some of that number would be men that were barely trained and equipped, and it would be very challenging to support all of them if they were in the field at the same time. The Norwegian Army Air Corps was able to field 62 aircraft, but only 19 of that number were modern types, with 9 British uh, gladiator fighters, 4 Italian bombers, and 6 German HE-115 torpedo bombers. The Norwegian Navy would also play a very important role in the fighting that would occur during the German invasion, and it was divided into three different zones of defense. The most heavily armed ships were two quite old coastal defense ships, but these two ships were built all the way back in 1900, so you can imagine they, they were getting on in years. Many of the other ships of the Navy were built before the First World War, which limited their general strength and utility against the very modern German ships that they would be facing. The bulk of the more modern strength of the Navy would be found in its destroyers and torpedo boats. Four of these destroyers were very recently built, with the first of the class entering into service in 1936, and two additional destroyers of that same class still under construction, so they were 100% brand new. But overall, the Norwegian Navy was capable of launching some operations, but they were handicapped by how many areas of Norway they needed to protect from an invasion, which spread their already thin resources in a way that made any concentration of force impossible. The general weakness of the Norwegian Navy, at least when compared with the forces that Germany would have available to it, would make the fixed defenses around the ports or around Norway very important when it came to stopping the German invasion before men even got ashore. And those fixed defenses will be a major part of what we discuss over the next several episodes. While Norway was the ultimate target of the German operations, a critical part of the plan was the quick capture of Denmark and the airfields at Aalborg. The invasion of Denmark would begin just after 5 a.m. on April 9, 1940. The leaders of Denmark were in a rough spot when information about a possible German invasion began to trickle down into Danish army intelligence. The Danish military was in no way capable of real resistance against a German invasion. The numbers just were not there. And so the government decided to not deploy or mobilize the military. The theory was that it was important not to do anything to provoke German aggression, a decision that did not prevent the German invasion, but did prevent any action from the Danish military until less than an hour before the first German troops crossed the border. This meant that all the Germans encountered at the border were some frontier guards, not that much different than they would have encountered in peacetime, and it was only later that elements of the Jutland Division of the Army would come into action. By that time, other German units were already coming into action, with 96 airborne troops dropped on some bridges and the troops of the 198th Infantry Division executing an amphibious landing to capture some of the bridges that connected Jutland and Zealand. Just minutes after the first troops crossed the border, German units were also already on their way to Copenhagen. This attack against the Danish capital came in the form of a marine landing from an auxiliary mine layer, which was used as a troop ship to move units into the harbor of Copenhagen, 
landing them at a pier on the north end of the city and allowing German troops on board to quickly go ashore and move around the city at will. There were some opportunities for Danish defenders to fire on the German ship, as there were forts guarding the entrances to the harbor that could have attacked the auxiliary mine layer. But given the general confusion of the situation, the defenders were not sure what to do, and therefore decided not to engage with the ships as they were making their final approach. One of the key targets for those troops in Copenhagen was the citadel, which was quickly captured from its 70-man garrison. Then the troops moved on to the palace where the Danish king was captured. While all of these operations had went exactly as planned, the real prize for the entire invasion, the entire reason that Denmark was invaded in the first place, were the airfields at Aalborg. These would be captured by German paratroopers who were dropped at 7 a.m., with a fleet of 53 transport aircraft immediately following after to deliver a battalion of infantry troops which fully secured the airfields for use during the operations against Norway that would follow. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Norwegian target, which was closest to Aalborg, was the southern port of Christiansand. The port was theoretically protected by a series of defenses that would have presented a serious challenge to the German invaders. But there were, of course, many problems. Like other areas of the Norwegian military, the fixed defenses for Christiansand had been victims of budget cuts during the 1920s, which left them in very poor repair by the mid-1930s. At that point, there was an effort to push money into them to bring them back into action, but there was not enough time for major changes to be made. The main threat to any naval invasion was the fort at Oroya, which had four 24cm howitzers, two 21cm guns, and six 15cm guns. Although range would be a serious problem due to design decisions that had been made which limited the guns to only covering the fjord itself, they could not really fire out into the open sea, which limited how quickly they could engage enemy vessels. The guns were also heavily undermanned on the night of the invasion, due to a lack of any kind of mobilization order in the days before the invasion. News of something happening did arrive just before midnight, with the first shots having been fired at German ships as they approached Oslo, an event that we will cover in a future episode. This alerted the 25 officers and 150 men in the fort that they needed to be on high alert. Then, at around 2 a.m., 
a signal was received that unknown ships had been sighted approaching Bergen, making it clear that something was happening beyond the confines of Oslo. After this second signal was received, the alarm was sounded, and a few minutes later all batteries were made ready with live ammunition loaded into the guns. This put them in a much better position to fire warning shots at German ships that were sighted a few hours later. And with no reaction to those shots, the officer in charge ordered the guns to begin firing at the German ships at 5.32 a.m. The German ships that they spotted, and that they then fired at, were the ships of Task Force 4, led by the light cruiser Karlsruhe, along with two torpedo boats, a depot ship, and seven S-boats. The plan was for this collection of ships to land the infantry troops that were on board just after 4 a.m. local time, but thick fog had forced a delay. Just after 5 a.m., they would finally turn to make their way towards their destination, which would take them past the Norwegian fortifications, from which they did not expect any real, actual resistance. The warning shots were not necessarily unexpected, and they were not heeded when they fell well ahead of Karlsruhe, which was the first ship in the German procession. When the Norwegian guns began to fire at the Karlsruhe, their results were quite shocking, with several shells exploding on or near the superstructure, showering it with shrapnel and causing a good amount of damage. The German ship would return fire, but only one of its turrets was in position to actually hit uh, the Norwegian fort. It rapidly became clear that the volume of Norwegian fire was reaching a point where the Karlsruhe could not continue forward without risking serious damage, and there were a thousand infantry soldiers in danger because they were also on board, along with a large collection of staff officers that were supposed to take command of all German soldiers in southern Norway. Due to these concerns, and just a general concern about continued damage, the captain of the Karlsruhe would turn around and abort the mission temporarily, while the Luftwaffe was called in to bomb the Norwegian fortifications. When the bombers arrived, the results of their bombardment looked amazing. It looked devastating, at least from the Karlsruhe, as there were large explosions and a tremendous plume of smoke. However, only one battery of guns would be inoperable at that point, mostly because of the aerial bombardment. And so, while it looked impressive, the actual results were pretty lackluster. Thinking that the problem had been solved, the Karlsruhe once again turned to make its way back up the fjord. Once again, as soon as it came within range, the Norwegian guns began to fire. And then this time, both the German and Norwegian fire was far more accurate, with the German ship rapidly sustaining multiple hits, while the gunners on the Karlsruhe were also able to land several high-explosive shelves within the perimeter of the fort. The damage caused by the Norwegian guns was once again very concerning for the captain of the Karlsruhe, and at 6.23, he once again chose to turn back due to concerns that the ship was going to sustain damage that would threaten its mission. What the Germans could not know at this time was that the Norwegian guns and their gunners were rapidly reaching the end of their abilities to continue. The Norwegian guns were old, and while they still packed a punch, that age was beginning to show due to the rate of fire that was being asked of them. As the firing continued, more guns were going down, not to German shells or German damage, but simple mechanical failures. Breaches were locking shut, mechanisms were breaking. Anything that could go wrong was going wrong for these guns. There were efforts by the Norwegian gunners to keep them going, with gunsmith Becken 
deserving special mention for all the work that he did throughout the morning, moving from gun to gun as they broke down, trying to bring them back into action. But there was nothing that could truly keep the guns firing forever. And by the time that the Karlsruhe turned back for the second time, the Howitzer battery was down to only one gun due to mechanical failures, and casualties suffered from German fire. The defenders were given a bit of a respite from action for nearly three hours after the Karls were retreated at 6.23 a.m., giving them time to tend to the wounded, work on the guns, and repair some telephone cables. It also gave them a chance to get some food. After a few hours of rest, there would be one final attempt by the Germans to force their way into the harbor. And this would begin at 10.30 a.m., after a breeze had started up, which pushed away the remaining fog. This time, when the German ships began to make their way forward inside the Norwegian fort, as the guns readied to once again fire, a report was made that the ships were streaming the French tricolor. Slightly confused, but not wanting to fire on any friendly warships, the order was passed throughout the guns to cease fire. It would only be when the ships were past the Norwegian forts and out of range of most of the guns that the report was countered by sightings of the German naval flag aboard the ships. Unfortunately for the Norwegian defenders, after doing so much work throughout the morning, they were undone by a faulty report, because it was clear that the Germans were not flying the French flag, as they did not have any on board. They did have British flags, with there being some discussion before the invasion that they could have been used to sow confusion among the Norwegians, but no French flags were present. After the war, there was a lot of discussion about this incident, uh, especially when it became clear that there was not a French flag on board the German ships. One theory is that the Norwegians cited the German naval signal flag for H, which uses the same three colors as the French flag, but the colors are reversed. Regardless of why the mistake was made, at 10.50 a.m., the Karlsruhe dropped anchor in Christiansand, and by the middle of the afternoon, the city was firmly in German hands. While Christensen was the Norwegian target that was furthest to the south, Sola, near Stavanger, was one of the furthest west. The airfields at Sola were important because they were the closest airfields to Britain, and were actually closer to Scapa Flow, the British Royal Navy Fleet anchorage, than they were to Germany. This made it very likely that they would be a target for a British attack and of British occupation as soon as news of the German actions became known. And if they could capture those airfields, it would be very difficult for the German shipping to continue to move around in the North Sea, cutting off all of those German units further north. This priority meant that Sola would be the site of one of the German airborne operations, with German paratroopers scheduled to jump onto the field to secure it and then allow for a follow-on airlift. The airfields were protected by 800 men of the Jaeger Battalion of the 2nd Norwegian Infantry Regiment, who had been moved into the area only about a week beforehand. Along with being quite new to the area, these men were also lacking in any real heavy weapons, having only nine machine guns, only three of which had proper mountings that allowed them to be used in an anti-aircraft capacity, which would obviously be quite important to resist an airborne landing. There were a few fixed defenses set up around the field, but there were more that were still under construction. Sola was also the base for several Norwegian bombers, and on the morning of the 9th, they would be ordered to prepare to move east as soon as possible. This meant that they were in the process of taking off when eight German bombers appeared and began to attack the airfields, 
dropping bombs, and then executing low-level strafing attacks on anything that looked threatening. A few minutes later, BF-110s would also make a strafing attack on the airfield to silence any remaining resistance in preparation for the airborne drop. 134 German paratroopers would then make the jump, but many of them would jump right into the firing arc of one of the few remaining Norwegian machine guns. This gun, manned by Ragnar Johansson, was set up in the only completed bunker in the area, and its fire would pin down many of the paratroopers. One of the challenges faced by German paratroopers that's really important in this exact scenario is that they did not carry their weapons with them on the jump, instead having only a pistol and a knife, due to the expected hard landing that German paratrooping equipment kind of forced upon them. Their weapons were instead dropped in cases at the same time that they themselves exited the aircraft. This created a situation where the German troops were relatively helpless for as long as it took to find their weapons and retrieve them, which became far more difficult when there was a Norwegian machine gun blazing away right above their heads. However, one machine gun cannot stop an entire airborne landing, and as soon as some of the paratroopers landed outside of Johansson's firing arc, they were able to get their weapons and silence all remaining Norwegian resistance. Soon after the end of Norwegian resistance, several dozen Ju-52 transport aircraft arrived to deliver more German troops, and by early in the afternoon, there were 2,000 German soldiers at Sola, along with ground crew for the aircraft, anti-aircraft guns in case the British showed up, communications equipment, and 9,000 liters of aviation fuel. Most of the paratroopers that had originally jumped onto the airfield were then loaded back up on some of the transports that were empty for a ride back to Germany, having spent really only a few hours in Norway. Further north from Sola was another German target, Trondheim. This Norwegian port was the focus of German Task Force 2, made up of the heavy cruiser Admiral Hipper and four destroyers. The German ships would be off the coast of Trondheim by the middle of the afternoon on April 8th, and the Hipper would launch a float plane to do some reconnaissance of the approaches to the city. Then, just before 2am on the 9th, they turned into the Leeds, after crossing over into Norwegian territory just before midnight. As they entered the approaches to Trondheim, the German ships were blacked out because they knew they were entering into the danger zone. There was the possibility of real danger here, just like the Karlsruhe had experienced at Christiansand, with three forts having been built to protect the approaches into the fjord that led to Trondheim. There were two major problems for the Norwegians. The first was that these forts were old, and just like other fortifications around Norway, they had been partially mothballed during the interwar years to save on funds. The second problem was that on the night in question, when they were needed most, those forts were needed most, there were only about 350 men spread between the three of them, and that was nowhere close to the full complement of the three forts, and that also included a good number of non-combat personnel. This was due to the fact that none of the defensive troops in or around Trondheim had been mobilized or even put on a higher alert level. For these and some other reasons, even when orders went out to the forts on the southern side of the approaches to Trondheim that they should be manned and ready for action, there was not a lot of urgency in complying with the order, which meant that it simply was not completed in time. Some of the Norwegian guns did eventually fire at the German ships, but well after they were past the point of greatest danger, with the Hipper using its searchlights to blind the gunners, making it difficult to achieve any real hits. The German ships would not receive any damage on their way into Trondheim, 
where they would drop anchor at 4 a.m. and begin putting troops ashore. The city would be captured without any real resistance being encountered, a a lucky series of events that would extend to the capture of the nearby airfield the next day. Overall, it was one of the smoothest of all of the German operations. Next episode, the podcast will shift its focus to the largest city attacked by the Germans during the invasion, the capital of Norway, Oslo, where the German plans would be completely derailed by the actions of Norwegian gunners and some Norwegian torpedoes.